Welcome to another special episode of CrossCast. The following is a recording of a biblical theology seminar taught by Matt Whitney. This is part two of a two-part series. To catch up on part one, feel free to listen to the previous episode. Enjoy. Well, uh, I think think we'll go ahead and get started. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming back. Um, I'm sure we might still have people trickle in, so we'll leave the doors open for a bit, but... Um, after a while, we can shut them or whatever. Um, I'm going to pray, but what I'd like to do after prayer is, uh, for those of you who did the, the homework assignments and stuff, if there's anything you want to share, that's sort of where I want to start today, just to let you all know. So um, I'll pray, and then if there's any like insights you guys came across, or just like, just like, oh, wow, this was so cool, or this was really useful, hopefully there was at least some of that in, in the homework assignments and everything from last week. Um, and then we'll, we'll dive into session two. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time to be with your people, uh, guided by your word and filled by your spirit. Um, we pray that you would be present here with us as we seek to understand your scriptures. We know that it is the Holy Spirit who gives us sight and wisdom and gives light to our eyes. And so I pray that he would be present with us this morning as we seek to understand Jesus better, um, to understand his place of blessing, to understand the curse that he took on so that we could have the blessing. We think of the world around us uh, thrown into turmoil and chaos with people seeking the blessing through their own deceptive means. Uh, We think of the people of Ukraine right now, and we simply pray that your grace and mercy would be evident there, that Christ would show himself as king even in a world that still wants to reject him. And so we ask this morning that your kindness would shine on us, that we would be filled with knowledge, love, grace, and peace. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, Any brave soul out there want to kind of share anything from this last week, either in terms of uh, reflecting on what we talked about last week or uh, stuff from the homework assignments in particular? I'd be interested to hear um, some of the stuff you guys gleaned out of that. I'm not going to make you guys raise hands about whether or not you did the homework. <laughs> well, I've done a study in the past on the tabernacle. Great. And, um, but the, what you went over, and, and uh, it, I mean, it was like, it took it to a whole new level, deeper. I just really appreciated cool. what you went into. Good. Yeah, and that, that was the, um, like the sermon audio and stuff that yes. I posted. Okay, cool. Good deal. Yeah, that was, that was honest to goodness, probably my favorite sermon I've ever preached. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, the, the theme of God's dwelling place is like, uh, I think that was one of the first things that I came across that really seemed to, to magnify what like the main storyline of the scripture was getting at. And um, I think there's a, there's a book by G.K. Beale called The Temple and the Church's Mission, which, I mean, it's fairly academic, um, but man, is it so good in terms of like getting into the weeds and showing you how God had been intending to use his people as the place of blessing through Christ um, from, from eternity past. It's, uh, it's just really sweet. So, yeah. Did anyone dive into the, the typology stuff? Like, um, like, what did I have here? I'm going to exit this and make sure I'm thinking around along the right lines. Uh, did anyone do the, the Joseph exercise by chance? 
Oh, oh man, that one, I, I commend it to you. That is such a fun one to go through. We'll get a small taste of it today with some of the stuff that we're doing. But um, yeah, if you guys get a chance to go through the, the story of Joseph, basically, for, I think it's from Genesis 37 or so onward to the end of the book. Um, and just like sit down with a pad of paper and a pen and just write down every time you see something that even like hints at Jesus just jot that down and you start to see it. And you, I mean, and then you go back over it and you see more and you go back over it and you see more. It's super cool. Um, anything in terms of like the, the covenants or anything like that? No one listened to that Tim Keller sermon about the Noahic covenant by chance? Oh, that was a fun one. <laughs> Good. Cool. Was there anything else anyone wants to share before we kind of dive into our material for today? I yeah. The, the, the Jonah question. Yeah. That's kind of an interesting one, I feel like. Because <laughs> Jonah is like, he's not really a good guy. He really is not. <laughs> An unfaithful Israelite, if there ever was one. <laughs> yeah. It's just so weird that Jesus picks him to yeah. be the sign. You know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I have any insight. It's just, it's just, it's, it's weird. Yeah. It's bizarre to think about, but I, I mean, it's one of those things where, um, uh, Tim Mackey, who's with the Bible Project, he, I'm, I'll, uh, I think I, I sent out one of the episodes of, of, or not episodes, but one of his classroom sessions talking about Jonah. And uh, he makes the, the argument that like the, the book of Jonah, where it exists in the Old Testament, it really is playing on every major theme up to that point. And um, man, I, maybe, maybe we'll do a seminar on Jonah sometime because uh, there's like so many cool things. And I, you know, I, I think... Uh, I think of um, friends who've like gone to seminary and taken Hebrew and all that sort of stuff. Jonah is like one of those first books they learn because the language itself is incredibly simple. But like the things that they're doing with with the literature, with the poetry, with the narrative itself, it just like unfolds like a I don't know. I'm trying to think of it, it blossoms like a beautiful flower, and you just see all these different layers and intricacies to it. And it's like it's one of the shortest books in the whole Bible, and it's like just packed dense. With um with big thoughts and ideas, so yeah, I'll uh, maybe take that under consideration. But yeah, it's we like at a surface level reading, super weird. <laughs> okay, cool. Everyone good then? Okay, so uh, oh, I should probably present something. Let's see here. Okay, so seminar two. Um, here are the goals for today. Uh, we didn't quite get into the issues of continuity versus discontinuity last week. And so um, we're going to explore those as, as concepts to some extent. But my hope, honestly, is um, really the second half of the class today is going to be spent going through the whole narrative of Scripture through this lens of... Yeah, I, I was going to do two different versions of this, one through the lens of God's people and one through the lens of God's place. And they just sort of melted together. So you guys are going to, I don't know how this is going to go, but hopefully uh, the ideas of continuity and discontinuity become clear through the way that you, you hear the scriptural story told. Um, secondly, uh, you know, I want, through using this example, I want you guys to, to begin to see, uh, much like with the, the tabernacle stuff, um, the, the grand narrative of God's scripture as it unfolds and picks up steam and looks like it comes under threat, but it's all within his divine plan. 
Um, I hope that that big idea kind of lands on you guys in a really fresh and unique way today. Um, <clears throat> third thing is that I want you guys to see in what ways Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament. So we have things like 2 Corinthians 1.20, which says that all the promises of God are yes in him. Like what in the world does that mean? Because there's lots of promises about nations and states and, and uh, land and, and all this sort of stuff. So, so what is in Paul's mind? We're not going to answer that question explicitly, but hopefully implicitly through what we go through today you guys will start to see how that all fits together. Again, Luke 24, 44 through 45, Jesus, you know, post-resurrection goes to his disciples, calls them slow of heart to believe. <laughs> Didn't they know that the Christ needed to suffer um, and fulfill everything that was in the law, the prophets, and, and the Psalms? Uh, or Matthew five seventeen, which is Jesus on the, the Sermon on the Mount saying that um, he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to, to fill them up. And so um, what's in Jesus's mind, what's in, what's in the New Testament author's mind, what's in Matthew's mind in particular as he's capturing these words of Jesus and writing them down for us? We're going to just explore Matthew's gospel a good bit today. And then fourth, as usual, like I want you guys to walk away from here with like a deeper hunger for God's word. And as we go through all this material, hopefully um, it'll encourage you to be in your Bibles more and more because it is God's means of shaping us into a people who will be a source of blessing for the whole world. Um, so that is the hope. Um, yeah, any, any thoughts on these goals? These sound good to you guys? Yeah? Okay, cool. Um, so a review from last week. Uh, for those of you who weren't able to attend, I don't know if everyone was able to listen to the podcast, but thankfully we were able to get it out before, uh, before today, which... <laughs> By the, by the skin of our teeth. Um, but uh, last week, we, we kind of compared the ideas of biblical and systematic theology. And so uh, I'll throw it out to you guys. Um, since last week, how, how have those ideas sort of um, been shaped in your own thinking? What it, how would you define this, maybe the, the differences and the, the, yeah, how would you just define biblical and systematic theology in relationship to each other, uh, even though I've already given the sub point that gives it right away. <laughs> I would say systematic is more of how every verse is connected of how the whole Bible is like one book, where theology is more like why is this was written, who was this written about, why was this put in the Bible necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd, I'd add to that, why does it exist in this place here, and how does, it, how does it interact with the other texts as they sort of mutually inform each other? Anyone else want to want to throw it in their words, throw down on, on us some wisdom? <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. It's perfect. Um, how do they mutually inform each other? Without having a proper biblical theology, you can't really have a good systematic <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, and vice versa, right? Like if, if we don't believe that 
God is, what the systematic theologians would tell us that he is, who he is, um, we, we have no reason to expect that he'd be a God who never lies. Um, if scriptures are not inspired by God and, you know, as men were carried about by the Holy Spirit, uh, we, we don't have any reason to suspect that it contains God's truth for us. And so you need biblical theology to do systematic theology, but equally you need systematic theology in order to, in order to do biblical theology um, because one without the other will, will, uh, will lead you down paths of, of just, I, I don't know, uh, misinformation, I guess, <laughs> to use a, a more modern phrase. But um, you see all these camps within Christianity going in very, very different directions, and a lot of that is because they dialed down on one type of theology without um, getting into the other. And um, without a, a good systematic approach, you will become a poor biblical theologian. And without a good biblical theology approach, you'll become a poor systematic theologian and um, start to see things in the scriptural narrative that may not actually be there. So, um, We can move forward to exegesis and hermeneutics. Um, all right. Uh, Exegesis. Who can who can tell us what that means? Isn't that like how the what you pull out of the word that speaks to you, or in essence gives meaning, and versus like what you can take from it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah please. Top down or bottom up? Yeah. Yeah. Can you can you go into that a little bit? Well. You know, if you just look up, God will reveal. Yeah. If we've, you know, uh, figured out and then, yeah, how's that? <laughs> yeah. It's not going to work. Yeah, that's good. Taking out what the scriptures say about Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's drawing out from the text what's in there. And again, the case I was making last week and, and we'll continue to make this week is that um, this, this uh, way of doing biblical theology is something that's inherent to the text. Um, it's something that's been placed in there for us to draw out. Um, and it is the Holy Spirit himself who allows us to see these sort of things. So, thanks. And then hermeneutics. Who can, who can give me a nice street definition of hermeneutics as, as kids on the street are wont to do? <laughs> Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's, it's interpretation, essentially. So, um, so obviously you can see how the ways that exegesis and hermeneutics sort of mutually inform each other as well. Uh, if you have a bad set of lenses, you might think you're pulling something out of the text, but if they're distorted, what you're going to pull out is distorted. If they're clear, if they sharpen your vision, if they allow you to see the text for what it truly is, it will allow you to, um, to draw out the, the real implications and, and realities and truths of God's word. Um, so, and then the, the last thing on this slide, we have a, a few more f- reviews for uh, on the next slide, but um, we talked about the Bible as this developing story of God's kingdom. Um, if you guys remember, I used the, the fraught phrase that the, the Bible is progressive or it is a progressive story, which is more, you know, PC to say, I suppose. Um, but the idea is, is that, um, it starts at the beginning of creation. It ends at the end of time when we are with him forever, ruling with him. Um, there's, how did we get from here to there? Uh, and, and where do we fit into the midst of all of it? Uh, because that, that timeline, 
spoiler alert, encompasses right now. It encompasses what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. It encompasses what's going on in Washington, D.C. It encompasses um, all the kingdoms of this world. And so uh, someday they will all bend the knee to Jesus. Um, and so, uh, but all that to say, Jesus himself had this understanding of the scriptures because he, he walks onto the scene and says, uh, the time is fulfilled, indicating that there has been time before this that has been leading to the point of his entry into his ministry. The kingdom of God is at hand. We talked a bit last week about um, the theme of God's kingdom. We're going to dive into that even more today. Uh, repent and believe the gospel. Where, where do we, how do we respond to this news that Jesus is bringing? Um, so that is really short uh, for what we did last week. Um, the other things, the, the elements of a kingdom. Did, how, how did you guys, uh, were these ideas of like the PPPB or the plan B, were these helpful for you guys in thinking through? I, these have been just money for me. Uh, they've been super helpful. Did anyone go through the, the um, Bible history slides by chance that I sent out? Um, that's a super easy way to just get a, a sense of like, big chunks of scripture, what's going on in each one. Will it fill out every detail? No. Will it give you a complete understanding of every weird thing that happens in the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings? No, it won't. But it'll do an awful lot in terms of giving you explanatory power for understanding what the, the overarching narrative of the scriptures are about uh, so that you can see how your own story fits in and you can see how God gloriously orchestrates this whole thing like a like a master conductor um okay covenants any anything unclear about covenants still um i think one of the things i do want to mention well i I should give you guys space to talk because i just kept going (laughs) it's okay if you have questions by the way i welcome them i may not have answers but All right, well, one of the things uh, I do want to mention about covenants is um, you can get to the point where you try to <laughs> read too much into them. So, I mean, there's one of those things like that, the graph I, or the little table that I sent out last week had, you know, I think seven or so covenants on it. It had covenant of creation, covenant of redemption, the Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, all that sort of stuff. Some of those are very clear. It's like God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. There are other ones where it's way more implicit, and you can, theologians will debate amongst themselves, what was the creation covenant really about? And is Genesis 3.15 really the covenant of redemption? And you, it's a tool to help you understand what's going on. Don't, don't like try to force it. Again, this is, this is exegesis versus eisegesis. Like, don't try to force this tool on something where it won't fit. Um, like, use it to help you understand in broad strokes uh, what the scriptures are getting at. Is that, is that clear? Does that kind of make sense? And so that, that goes for the idea of the covenants of works versus covenants of grace. So like, you know, uh, the Second Samuel 7 covenant that God made with David, um, there are things about that that are very clearly like, this is just, God is just going to do this. He's going to care for David and his offspring. Um, but then you have words like a, a warning, like when, his, when your son goes astray, I'll discipline him. And it's like, well, and this gets to elements of continuity and discontinuity, as a matter of fact, because if, if that is ultimately about Jesus, so us looking back with our New Testament lenses, it's like, well, Jesus never disobeyed. And it's like, well, yeah, that's sort of the point. <laughs> so, um, 
But yeah. Are they if then? If then is that the covenant of works? Pretty much uh, to some extent, yeah. So I mean, the Mosaic covenant is is probably the best example of a covenant of works in the scriptures because it's God saying like, "Be loyal to this covenant." You know, the way of life is before you. It's not in heaven that you need to go up there and get it. It's not down in the abyss where you need to find it. It is in your heart and in your mouth. So just follow the words of this covenant and you will inherit the, the, the Eden blessing. Which we'll get into that idea more. But if you don't, exile, destruction, death, hardship. Um, and so it really is based on the performance of the... the uh, smaller kingdom, as it were, um, in that covenant agreement. So if you obey, then you get this. If you disobey, then you get that. So yeah, it so is that. Salvation is a free gift, but you have to die yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, there, that brings up a lot of, man, I, this is why we need like 10 weeks to actually do a thorough treatment of this. Because if you think about it, like um, even in the Exodus story, God saved his people before they did anything. He just, he saved them out of Egypt. Like salvation was by grace. <laughs> like, uh, and, and yet like through that salvific, and it always goes like this, like God saves and then he gives instruction. He gives his principles. Um, the Mosaic covenant, as the New Testament authors will tell us, ends up being like a, a placeholder of sorts um, that's supposed to pave the way to when the Messiah comes. Uh, to prepare the way, the way, you know, uh, Mo, uh, not Moses, uh, the way, John the Baptist himself would, who kind of puts an end cap on the whole uh, law and prophets side of things. But, um, but yeah, it, it, uh, it had some devastating consequences for the people when they, when they ignored it. So, um, which means that what we needed was a better covenant, a new covenant that couldn't be broken through our own sin and a better covenant head who would never, ever fail. So... Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's honestly a great way to put it, too, because what is, like, in the word sovereign, sovereign, like, it, it's kingly language. Like, it shows that God is a king. Um, and so, yeah, to, to put the, the idea of covenants in the context of God's sovereignty actually fills out a lot of places, a lot of otherwise, like, pretty confusing portions of your Bible. Yeah. But when I first became a Christian, my understanding was the law was directed to point people to Christ. Yeah. And that being a covenant of works showed you you could earn your salvation, so it led you to grace. Yes. I didn't know about the two earlier covenants, the Abrahamic and the Noahic. Yeah. You know, yeah. 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 Do you have any under any insight as to why he goes from a covenant of grace or two covenants of grace mm-hmm. to a covenant of works back to a covenant of grace and into a new covenant? Yeah. Um, I th- the short answer to that would be maybe I have an answer. Um, I, I think the Paul's treatment of it in Galatians in particular um, is a really, like, honestly thoughtful, and it, uh, the guy obviously reflected on this a lot. Um, so 
he talks about the law of Moses being like a schoolmaster there to, to train, to teach, to show people what, one, God was like, what life in obedience to him would look like in the way it would give blessing to other, but also it, it was there to show us that like we can't, like you were saying, like we can't do it ourselves. And that's why, we, that's why you know, and Paul's arguing in Galatians as well as in Romans, he's pointing us back to Abraham and the covenant God made with him and that it was through Abraham's offspring that the world would be blessed. Um, and so the law is there really in a lot of ways to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And hopefully, um, as we kind of get into the material today, like uh, I won't address it expl- explicitly, sure. but hopefully implicit in, in what we go through, uh, human nature being what it is, uh, God's nature being what it is, you see how those things kind of collide over and over in the way that God, in his sovereignty, is able to overcome uh, all sorts of evil and destruction in order to bring about salvation. So that, that was a little more long-winded, and I don't know if I actually ended up answering your question. No, but, um, Okay. Cool. Yeah, and then... Um, I mean, the, the elements of the covenant, we don't, we don't need to go over those, but there is like, you know, you can go over the notes from last week and it just, it's a nice breakdown. Not every covenant has every aspect of it, but most of them do. And like, if you hit, you know, six out of seven, like, you know, walks enough like a duck that I'll call it a duck, you know? So, um, epochs. Now that's something that we went over very briefly uh, last week. And I think we were having technology issues at the time, so it may not have been very clear. So we're going we're gonna to touch on those just a little bit. Um, so <clears throat> this is sort of how I've come to understand epochs. Again, these are, this is a tool that's just, it's there to help polish your lens. Um, it is not something that you have to have in order to read the Bible, but it is something that can be useful. Uh, this is, this is a, a, a Googled ancient Hebrew calendar, and this came up. I have no idea what that actually is. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I would, I would say to some extent they're loosely defined markers of the progression of God's story. So it could be as, as broad as Old Testament and New Testament. It could be as broad as this age and the age to come. Um, it could be something like uh, the, the time under the Mosaic Covenant followed by the time under the new covenant. It could be, each epoch could be God's work among the, the people of the world uh, through his different covenants as it progresses through scripture. Or as hopefully you guys will see today, like I think you can break up Genesis itself into certain epochs where Genesis 1 through 12 is the biblical version of world history followed by uh, 12 through 50 where you get the history of the people of Israel. And even that is broken up where you have Abraham and then a short thing where it's like Isaac and Jacob. Isaac only gets like two chapters. So. Um, and then you have Joseph and, and his brothers. Uh, and I think each one of those, in a sense, is an epoch. Um, so again, it's, it's one of those things where it's just like you start to see God doing something different. Um, and that's, that's usually the way I'll, I'll end up defining an epoch. So, um, so again, this, these are the, the major events in Scripture that serve to recast God's uh, people and their relationship with him. So um, the time before Noah, the pre, pre-Diluvian, um, to use a very technical term, pre-flood people uh, versus the post-flood people, um, God promised he's never going to judge the world with the waters of chaos again. 
Um, he's not going to uncreate his world again. Hopefully those sort of ideas become clear as we go. But that, you know, those are two different epochs even there. Uh, his relationship with the world is different on account of, um, on account of his covenant. Um, the examples, did anyone read through Stephen's uh, speech in, in Acts chapter 7? Uh, that's a fun one too. I, honestly, if you get the chance, um, it is one of those things where basically every new paragraph, depending on, on your translation, I guess, but I, I read the ESV usually, um, every new paragraph is basically Stephen entering into a new explanation of one of the epochs uh, as, as we're defining them in the biblical narrative. Um, it's a really cool case study in terms of how um, the people of the New Testament were thinking about their Old Testaments. Um, I threw in there as well that uh, if you actually read through Psalm 78, um, you end up seeing that uh, you get these loosely defined epochs there as well, where um, the the psalmist is reflecting on the fact that the current covenant unfaithfulness of of the people of Israel is being compared to past covenant unfaithfulness in the wilderness wandering, showing that even as the story has progressed and the kingdom has been established, there's still a dark root of sin in the hearts of God's people. And so this culminates, this whole psalm culminates in the hope of a new epoch where, uh, where he, the psalmist reflects on David's rule over Israel once more. So you can assume that the psalmist is living in a time after David and he wants a new David to come to usher in a new era of covenant faithfulness. He's looking forward for, to an epoch to come where an, an offspring of David will bring about covenant blessing. Um, Psalm 106, you have uh, really, it's a, the story of Exodus, followed by the wilderness wanderings, followed by the incomplete conquest of Canaan, followed by idolatry in the land, followed by threats from external enemies, whether it's Assyria or Babylon, we're not quite sure. Um, and then a cry for God to be faithful to the covenant and bring them back from the exile uh, to give to them a new and better exodus um, and a, a new and better epoch in which they can live. Uh, and then Ezekiel 16, this is the, really the, the parable, the metaphor that Ezekiel employs to talk about, uh, well, that uh, God employs through Ezekiel to talk about his relationship with his people where he finds this child abandoned in, in the blood of its own birth and raises it and nurtures it and takes care of it and then uh, uh, betroths himself to it. Um, as as the, the child grew and became a beautiful woman, he, he marries her, but then she goes off and goes with other lovers. And uh, you know, it's a really poetically devastating reflection of the progression of Israel's history um, as they give themselves over to idolatry, as they make alliances with other kingdoms and ignore the king of kings. Um, it's a, it's, it's a, again, d- these are great passages to go through to like, even just not like verses one through whatever. This is how I, this is the, the epoch I'm seeing the, the biblical author define here. So again, these are, these are biblical, uh, in a sense, like the word epoch, like I, I took that from Michael Lawrence. So use it, don't use it. Um, era maybe would be better time <laughs> would work just as well, uh, but yeah, so there are, there are some useful things with that. All right, um, this is honestly going to be probably the hardest thing to explain um, because I think in some respects, 
some of the stuff I'm, I'm going to say might be controversial, especially with respect to the way um, Christians sort of view the relationship of the church in Israel. Um, but I think these ideas of continuity versus discontinuity can, can help inform us regardless of where you might land on some of these more controversial topics. Uh, so again, when we get into the narrative, you'll, you'll, you'll get a taste for what I'm, I'm trying to, to argue for here. Um, but really, uh, these were supposed to be, uh, these were supposed to come up one by one, which they did not. That's okay. So um, when it comes to continuity versus discontinuity, a really, a really helpful way to think about this is the relationship between an acorn and an oak tree. How many of you, if you were an alien traveling to this planet, you pick an acorn up off the ground, you look at it and say, that's going to turn into one of those trees. Like, but there is, there is continuity between the two, right? Like they are, genetically speaking, scientifically speaking, they are the same organism. They are the same thing. But that development, like from a, from a seed to a sprout to a sapling to a medium-sized tree <laughs> to a really big tree that you can hang, you know, swings off of and climb up and one that you can, you know, chop off the branches and make furniture for yourself, whatever. Like, all these things. Like, there's, there's elements of continuity and discontinuity between all of them. Um, and so I think what the, the, the biblical authors are constantly showing us how God's plan progresses with elements where it's continuous and elements where it's like, you know, a good example would be Jesus in the sacrificial system. Like Jesus was sacrificed for sins once and for all, which, you know, it has some level of continuity with the Levitical priesthood system, but it's discontinuous in the sense that he's not offering himself every single day. He's not going again and again to the cross and, you know, to, to show, you know, some acknowledgement of our Catholic neighbors, like he doesn't need to be sacrificed on the altar every single week. Like um, in love, guys, you don't you don't need to do that. <laughs> like so, um, so the the whole the big picture here is that God is faithful to His promises throughout the Scriptures, um, and hopefully that becomes clear as we go. But the, the thing is, is how God ends up fulfilling these promises is a bit like the progression of an acorn to an oak tree. Um, it might be surprising at times. It might produce unexpected results. Uh, but it might be really cool, just like an oak tree. <laughs> so, um, so uh, okay, when it comes to this... Um, the, the idea of horizons of fulfillment here. Um, let's use Abraham as an example. God promises Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17 that he will, his offspring will be like the stars of heaven, like the sand on the shore, and him and his wife are old and barren. So fulfillment one is when God gives uh, Isaac to Sarah. Uh, fulfillment too would be when Isaac has his own son, sons, really Esau and Jacob, but you know, the, the young, the older ended up serving the younger. Um, and then you see Jacob become this like fruitful vine of a human, uh, not because Jacob's a good guy either, but, um, Jacob, you know, you really see this promise start to develop the 12 tribes come from Jacob. Um, they're in the land of Egypt and there's 
hundreds of thousands of God's people there. Uh, they get into the land of promise and the numbers have continued to grow and grow and grow. So you see this fulfillment as time goes on um, being capitalized more and more. But, you know, to, to fast forward and kind of give it away a bit, like if uh, the, not all of Israel is Israel, as Paul will argue in Romans chapter 9. Um, but it's those who have the faith of Abraham who are truly his offspring. Uh, and so the number expands dramatically once Jesus is ushered in his new covenant people. Um, and so you see these layers as it goes, and ultimately you have uh, a crowd beyond number in the book of Revelation um, singing the praises of God to the lamb who was slain on their behalf. Um, so horizons of fulfillment. Any, any questions on that? Any concerns? Yeah. So the continuity is faith. Discount, discontinuity is discount. So we're just like as a Catholic, it would be the mystery of faith. Yeah, yeah. So that's okay, right? Yeah. You don't have to figure out and close a discontinuity. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's a good point. I mean, <laughs> don't know if I know how to answer it, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's a solid point. Um, I'm going to open this. Okay. Well, that was good thing there's no camera today. Oh, I'm like parched today. Okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, this is just a really helpful graph, too, to, to just see how God does things. And again, hopefully, you, hopefully I, I really want to show and not tell. I get, a, I get really bogged down in telling sometimes, but as we go, hopefully I'll show. Um, I, I yeah. Kind of, I kind of thought of a question. My own mind, the word discontinuity. I mean, what do you what do you mean by that? Do you do you mean uh, like where we go? Like, I, 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 I
who says, when I turn 15, will you please buy me an iPod? Okay, you promise, like, yes, I will, I will get you that thing. I will certainly buy that for you. Now, suppose further, to, to make the analogy even weirder, that you actually work for Apple, and you know that they are about to release a piece of technology that is going to change the whole game. Uh, it will be revolutionary, it will change everything, but you're sworn to secrecy, even to the point where you can't tell your six-year-old that this thing that is going to be called the iPhone is coming out. Um, Nine years goes by, it's the year 2016, and you give your child an iPhone 7. Did you keep your promise? No. Yeah, I would say yes as well. (laughs) I would say using, using what that child understood with their limited understanding of what technology and, and all that stuff even was, you spoke to them and promised them in a way that they could comprehend. Now, um, this gets controversial because I think that Jesus is the fulfillment of literally everything, even the, the, the promises of place, uh, the promises of a temple. Like, it's one of those things where you get to Ezekiel 40 through 48, and you are told about, like, really a, a glorious temple, um, and, and, you know, the people of God are waiting for a temple like that before Jesus comes. And Jesus says, there's something greater than the temple here. Um, now, is it possible that Jesus is, or that God himself, actually, let's say God himself, who is Jesus? Systematic theology. Uh, let's suppose that God himself, when he's promising this glorious temple, is using imagery and ideas that would have been familiar to the people of Israel at that time in order to communicate eternal realities that will come to fulfillment when Christ arrives. Um, this is where it gets controversial because this is not the sort of thing that like, you know, the Left Behind series, which is like a really, you know, it's a pop level way of, of doing theology, but like those sort of ideas would run contrary to people who kind of take those, those, uh, those works of, of um, fiction as representative of uh, a view of the biblical end times. Um, and so I think this happens a lot personally, throughout the Old Testament prophecies. Um, I think God is using ideas and analogies and um, big picture things that make sense to the people in their time in order to communicate divine, eternal truths that will find their culmination in Jesus. And, you know, sort of an argument for the Ezekiel thing, like you get to Revelation and you see the city and there are descriptions of the city and the rivers running through the city that are very, very similar to the temple in Ezekiel's vision. Um, what's missing in, in the New Jerusalem? There's no temple. <laughs> and yet John is employing the, the imagery of Ezekiel 40 through 48 to talk about what the restoration is going to look like. So food for thought. <laughs> um, but it is, this is where the ideas of, of continuity, discontinuity, all that sort of stuff becomes a little bit more uh, dangerous, I guess. So, um, again, to, we kind of went over a lot of these already. So, I'm gonna, uh, so we have, as I've talked about, God's people, God's place, God's rule, God's blessing, and God's presence. Um, there are elements of continuity where the, every single one of these things has a through line throughout the scriptural story. Like, these ideas carry on from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through to Revelation 22. How they manifest can vary from... Uh, epoch to epoch, covenant to covenant, 
um, Old Testament to New Testament. So, um, yeah. Any, any questions on that? I, I, I know I kind of like... There, there's a lot I just said. <laughs> well, I think that that's one of the things that's become pretty important for me is, is you know, I have a pretty basic understanding of, of all of this. And, and my study Bible is just talking a lot about, hey, remember, this was a very different time. These are things that we used or that, that people were familiar with so that they could understand that this is, you know, something that you you know enough about but you can you know especially with the covenant side totally saying okay yeah this is people were used to covenants and yeah kind of a contract and uh so yeah as you're saying these sort of things it's going to be better you just don't know yeah yeah but let me let me like a like a father speaking to his young child put this in terms that you'll understand Again, this, is, um, this gets to the idea that we talked about last week, that all of God's revelation to us is condescension. Like, he is the eternal high and holy one. Like, there's no other way for him to communicate with us. Um, you know, I, I think of, uh, you know, there, you, you talk to, like, skeptics, and they're like, well, you know, I've, I've done all this research, and I've done all these things, and, you know, I I've, I've can't believe in God. Like, he's never shown himself to me. And it's like, well, yeah, like... You know, a, a prisoner chained up in the dark is not able to reach the guard, but the guard is able to come over and boop them right on the nose. Like, so God is capable of revealing himself. Um, he is able to condescend, to come into the darkness of our own lives and to make himself known. Um, it's a not great analogy, and I think I used it out of the context that I originally heard it in, so you know, take it or leave it. I'll edit it out of the podcast. <laughs> so, um. All right. Who likes graphs? <laughs> All right. I'm going to come over here for a bit. Um, this, is, this is sort of what I'm going to be doing today, is talking about this progressive story where, you know, originally it starts in a high place. God with his people in Eden but they fall, and that fall continues all the way down through, essentially, like uh, the flood, where you know the the world looks like it's back in its pre-created state. Um, but we see God make a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see Joseph and Moses, and we see these promises being made, and they're starting to be fulfilled. And it gets to this glorious kingdom led by a wise king named Solomon, and then everything just goes to pot. And it falls and falls and falls. And so we kind of recapitulate this fall from Eden, where people were exiled from here. They're once again exiled from the land of promise here. And yet we have this prophetic hope that is talking about a new exodus, a new Eden, a new David, all the, like these things that are just so glorious. And yet at the return of the people from Ezra, uh, Ezra Nehemiah, uh, the prophets at that time, I think, are Zechariah, uh, Haggai, and Malachi. It's just like what the people are seeing is nowhere near this. It's still kind of down here. And even when Christ comes, like, there's still an occupied territory. Things are t- terrible. What's going on? And Christ shows up and says, I've come to fulfill all of this. And so how does he do that? Um, this is a helpful graph. Uh, I would... Um, I will send these out to you guys uh, again, but this is, this is a really useful one to just see big picture what's going on in the Bible. Any questions about this before we well, move on? Dash, 
my prophetic hope is that there's continuity. Yeah. And it's okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Okay. Um, the last thing, man, I'm going to have to fly through some of this other stuff. Okay, uh, Christ is the hermeneutical key. So um, this is what I'm going to attempt to do here in the next 30 or 40, well, let's be honest, 50 minutes. Um, so one cannot properly understand the Old Testament without realizing how it points to Christ. Like, you cannot understand what's going on in the first three quarters of your Bible without seeing how Jesus is its focal point. Um, but you can't properly understand Christ until you come to terms with the history of the Old Testament. Now, given there are people like, who have just had the Bible translated or really just the New Testament translated into their language, um, are the, is their salvation diminished if they come to faith in Christ because they don't have the Old Testament to go to? No, not at all. Um, God's grace is incredible. Uh, but as those cultures develop and as more of the Bible gets translated for them, um, I mean, it, it's very obvious reading the life of Jesus that the Hebrew Bible informed every aspect of his life. And so if you love Jesus and you're interested in him and you want to understand the world the way he understood the world so that you can reflect his light into this world, you ought to make yourself familiar with the, with the scriptures that he grew up on. Um, and then the, the last point here is that Christ and the Old Testament, they mutually interpret each other and they invite you into a life of scriptural meditation and faith. So, um, yeah, it is a really cool thing seeing Christ in the Old Testament and seeing the Old Testament in Christ and seeing the way that he is the true and better everything, uh, as we kind of pointed from Tim Keller last week. Okay, so I have broken up um, this whole idea of God's grand narrative through the lens of a people, a place, and a blessing into three main sections. Genesis, because I've been just stuck in Genesis for a super long time, so it gets its own, its own treatment. And we're going to do Exodus through the end of the rest of the Old Testament. And then we're going to just get into Christ and the church. And so I'll have breaks between these things. But um, I don't know. Does anyone want to break really quick before? Because I'm just going to start going. And I'll be honest with you guys. I'm going to ask a lot from you for this. <laughs> like, like the, I, I sent these to you. I emailed uh, this, this whole thing. I'm about to go through with you guys. I emailed them to you. If you, if you want to, you can pull them up and track along. I'll, I'll have scripture references in there. I'm just going to tell it like a story from here. And so sort of the, the hope I have is that as I go through your guys' own personal familiarity with the scriptures, like you'll start to see pieces snap into place. Um, and I, I'll be honest too, I, um, I probably set up more pins than I'm going to be able to knock down today. <laughs> like it got pretty late last night. I was like, I, I set that pin up way back in this thing, I'm just, I'm just going to leave it to everyone else to knock it down themselves. Um, so does anyone want to break before we go? Because like, I'm just going to dive into it here in a moment. Boss? Yeah? No? Okay. All right, here we go. Um, so I am going to tell the story of the Bible through the lens of God's place, God's people, and God's blessing. And, and what I want you guys to do is as we're going, 
Uh, I want you to pay attention to the ideas of God's promise. Uh, I want you to pay attention to the idea of a place of testing, a place of blessing. Um, I want you to pay attention to where there's deception and restoration. And I want you to pay attention to the places, namely the mountains, where we see a fall and an exaltation. Okay. <clears throat> if I were to ask you to picture nothing in your mind, what does that look like? It's a hard question because simply asking it already implies that something exists. It's hard for a human, which is a something, to imagine another something that is a nothing. How do you even begin to describe a no thing? A similar question has perplexed humans for as long as they've been around. What was it like before there was anything? Ancient people had their own ideas about this. And since ancient people wrote our Bible, they give us their idea of the pre-created state. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Before God began his seven-day work of creation, he gives us two descriptions that might seem at odds with each other. First, we have a land that is formless and void, could equally be, tra equally be translated wild and waste, or vanity and barrenness. Tohu bavohu in the original Hebrew. The picture that would come to mind for the ancient Hebrew would be one of a desolate wilderness, a desert. The second description is of the chaos waters, darkness over the deep. Imagine yourself sinking. The light fades ever so dimly as the currents and the undertow draw you ever deeper. No air, no spirit, no life, no light. This is the sort of thing an ancient Hebrew would think of. And never mind the fact that dry deserts and deep waters seemed contradictory. You know what they have in common? You ain't living in either of them for long. Which is to say, this is no place for the author of life to display his glory. And so his spirit hovers over as he creates the place of blessing and life. For six days, the sovereign God King decreed order out of the chaos. He brought light out of darkness, separated sky and sea and filled them with creatures and created a dry but well-watered place where his grace and glory project could begin. But the crowning jewel of God's grace and glory project was this. Let us make image bearers who can enjoy this place and rule over it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God partnered with his image bearers in the place of his blessing. And God blessed Adam and Eve and placed them in a place very much fit for life in a mountaintop garden with a tree of life. Eden was the focal point of God's blessing, and humans were his agents for spreading the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea, as the prophets would later talk about. And God looked at all that he had done, and he called it very good. And he rested on the seventh day. It was the only day without evening and morning. It is the place of God's eternal rest, and humans were invited into God's place of rest. However, humans lost that place of rule and rest over the created order and over the beasts in particular. In a place of testing, a lying beast in the garden convinced them blessing could be found somewhere else. The snake 
ruled over the humans. Because they were deceived into seeking their own glory rather than God's, they lost the place of blessing. God judged humanity, and they lost the blessing of eternal life. He cursed the deceiver, and he cursed the ground. The place for humans would now be a place of hardship and toil. They were exiled from the garden. And yet God promised that one day he would restore the blessing. An offspring of the woman would arise to crush the head of the lying snake and bring us back to the place of blessing through his eternal truth. Removed from the garden, removed from the tree of life, they venture away from God's place of life and head down the mountain east of Eden. Offspring were born to the woman, Cain and Abel. Cain is warned by God to resist a beast that lurks at his door. A snake was living in Cain's heart, and that snake was sin. Cain was tested. Cain killed his brother. Cain's descendants doubled down on his deceitful way of life and exiled themselves further east. But the promised offspring would come through Eve's next son, Seth. However, whatever hope Seth carried with him was woefully lost, and the whole world continued to spiral downward until God saw that not only are his image bearers not spreading the blessing, but as it says in Genesis 6:11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled not with blessing, but with violence. And God saw the chaos they were unleashing, and in judgment, he gave us over to it. If we want chaos and violence, then we will receive chaos and violence. In God's original act of creation, he prepared the world for life by separating light from dark, sky from seas, and the exalted land to be the place of his blessing. Here, in the flood, these all collapse in on each other. Darkness, once again, is over the face of the deep. This is all part of the same fall, and the undertow drags us deeper and deeper. We are left with nothing, with no place. But there was one man and his family who found grace in God's eyes. As the scriptures say, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And he built a boat, a place of safety and sanctuary. Delivered safely from judgment, the grace and glory project restarted. And once again, God blessed humanity and reminded them that they bear his image. And he promised that our violent and chaotic impulses would never destroy this place again. As a guarantee, God placed his bow in the sky. The warrior has laid down his weapon. And if you are paying close attention, you'll notice a hint. The bow is no longer aimed at the earth, but to deal with human corruption, it appears that God's bow is aimed right at the heart of heaven. Back on earth, Noah became a second Adam of sorts. He even planted a garden. This, will this be a place of blessing or a place of testing? Well, in Noah's garden, he gets drunk with the fruit of the vine and he and his family fall once again. We find that even in this new-ish creation, humans are still tragically human. In fact, after Noah, his people doubled down on their worst impulses and decided to build a place to establish their own glory. Let's make our na a name for ourselves with this great city, they cried as they, as they built Babylon. Straining for blessing in their own strength, they inherited a curse and were not gathered in one place, but spread across the whole earth. And so God got to work. The place of blessing is not attained by grasping for it with our own hands, doing it in our own name. Blessing comes from God's grace. God went to Abraham and said, I will make your name great, and I will make you a blessing, 
and I will bring your offspring into the place of blessing, and I will make them a blessing for the world. God partnered with humans once again, and to celebrate, Abraham commemorated God's covenant on high mountains, a faint memory of the mountaintop garden experience. Perhaps God will reestablish Eden here in the promised land. The promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring. One catch, he and his wife were old and barren. Would they trust God's ability to provide, or would they attempt to seize the blessing themselves? Sarah and Abraham conspired to impregnate their female servant. They became wise in their own eyes and consequently brought devastation and destruction into the life of another. This was not God's plan. He would not restore the blessing through Ishmael. The promised blessing will not come through human effort, but through faith in the work of God. And Abraham did believe God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So God promised Abraham that the restoration would come through Sarah's child, and behold, she is pregnant with a child, and Isaac is born. God's plan of restoration will always overcome natural limitations, even if it requires a miracle. But Abraham is called to another mountain place and told to sacrifice the offspring of the promise there. He laid wood on Isaac's back and led him up the hill. In that place, before the knife came down, God stopped him. Abraham passed the test. He trusted in God despite the utter implausibility of bringing a blessing through a dead and sacrificed son. The place of testing became the place of blessing, and they offered a substitute sacrifice. Isaac became a father to another son of the promised blessing, but he, like the snake, was a deceiver. Jacob, for deceiver is his name, was, was not his father's favorite, so he obtained the blessing through deceit. He lied to his father and said that he was the other brother in order to steal the blessing. Consequently, he, had to, he was exiled from the promised place and had to return to his grandfather's original home in Haran. However, on the way to his exile in a certain place called Bethel, Jacob had a vision of an angelic ladder reuniting heaven and earth, and God promised his offspring would bring this kind of blessing to the earth. While exiled from the place of promise, God's blessing still rested on Jacob, and he became the father of 12 sons. When he returned to the place of blessing, he had to struggle with God. God pinned him down, as it were, and asked him what his name was. Obviously aware that the way he stole the blessing from his father was through a lie, Jacob had no other choice but to, confess the, but to confess the fact that he was indeed Jacob, a deceiver. Through confession, God restored him to the place of blessing. And Jacob received a new name, Israel, one who wrestles with God. He was, in a sense, a new creation because he came face to face with a physical representation of God and left that interaction a changed man. He was blessed with weakness, and the limp he received would remind him that God does not bless in the face of human strength or cunning, but God blesses by means of divine vulnerability. However, though freshly blessed, Jacob still lacked a good bit of self-awareness, and he repeated the mistake of his father. He favored one son over all the others. Joseph earned the anger of his brothers because he was a special son. His brothers, like Cain before them, conspired to murder him. They would deceive their father and proclaim it was a beast who tore him apart. The promised offspring didn't realize they were becoming beasts themselves. Changing from their initial plan, Joseph was betrayed and sold into slavery for a few pieces of silver. He was removed from the land of blessing and went down to Egypt. In exile in Egypt, Joseph served well, 
And through service, he became exalted. And with his exaltation, he was falsely, he was falsely accused and condemned to prison. But even in a place like prison, God was with him. And it turned out that wherever God is becomes a place of blessing. And Joseph was blessed with divine wisdom. And through that, through that God-given wisdom, he is released from the place of condemnation, the pit of prison, and he is exalted to a throne. Under Joseph's rule, Egypt becomes positively Edenic, at least for seven years. After those seven years, the famine sets in, and even the promised place of Canaan became a formless desert. The brothers who betrayed Joseph came to him for food, and after a long convoluted story, Joseph tested his brothers and then offered them true spiritual, the, the true spiritual food of forgiveness. The forgiveness seemed too good to be true. To set his brother's heart at ease, Joseph tells them, as much as he tells all of us who live in this broken place, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So that is Genesis. All right. All right. Uh, a few questions to reflect on the Edenic, or Edenic, the Genesis portion of this. Um, what themes and ideas stood out to you guys in this retelling of Genesis? Uh, I wrote a couple things down that really struck me, and he said, through confession, he restores him to blessing. Yeah. And how powerful that is. Yeah. It's, it's like a seed in Genesis that becomes like so clear by the time Christ enters the scene um, and what it looks like to, to enter into God's kingdom. Like, you don't get there by saying that you're something that you're not. You confess who you are and, and God receives you. Um, there's even a beautiful picture of reconciliation between Jacob and Esau after that uh, where Jacob tells Esau, because you know, he's afraid that Esau's gonna kill him or whatever, um, he tells Esau, man, seeing you is like seeing the face of God, for you have accepted me. <laughs> like, so good. So good. Something I picked up on was when he said, <clears throat> when you were narrating how God doesn't use the strength, but it's through weakness. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you think about it. turn ties back to, in humility, you confess. Totally. You can't measure it up and yeah. he'll turn around and work wonders. Totally. Or even, I mean, to, to put it on its highest setting, like uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, I believe, talks about, he's talking about the cross, how it's foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews because it seems weak and foolish. But he goes on to say, but the, the weakness of God is stronger than man. And the foolishness of God is wiser than man. And so even though the cross looks like God's folly and it looks like God's weakness, it's actually the greatest instrument in all of human history. Um, and so, yeah. Jacob's story has always been super confusing to me. And I feel like the way you retold that part of Genesis with the visions that he saw with the latter and then wrestling with God with those two experiences, it just like, make his story make a little bit more sense of like why it's there and who this man is. <laughs> so thank you because it did help clarify some like weird things that have been yeah. like, what? 
<laughs> That's very fair. I, I mean, how many of you guys have been confused about that wrestling match or about the ladder and the fact that Jesus is like, oh, yeah, the Son of Man will be the one on whom the angels will ascend and descend. It's like, ah, I don't get it. And then even when renaming, it was, like, helpful. Like, it's a new creature. You, like, name Yeah. 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 No, you're getting, you're getting ideas, like small hints that, I mean, these are small things that are going to build to a crescendo as the story goes on. But like, these are seeds that are being planted in Genesis telling us that like, you actually need a new identity. You need to be made into a new creation, a new type of human. Um, That's what salvation is, which like, you know, God saved us from hell and praise his name forever for that. But like the Bible is not simply about getting a ticket out of hell and into heaven. It's about becoming a new kind of human. Um, and so I, I, that's always been, like, I think that's one of the things about biblical theology that has really refreshed my faith a lot um, is just seeing that big picture. Uh, and so, yeah, thanks for, for pointing that out. There's yeah. hope. And uh, we go through life, riches, rags, riches, from the mountaintop to the valley, mountaintop. We go through all of this stuff. Yeah. And we're not going to escape in the world of tribulation, be of good cheer. So yeah. wherever we are, whatever the diagnosis, we'll rejoice in the Lord because there's redemption. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, Joseph in the jail, right? Like he's in a dungeon, but it tells us, I, I've, I have the reference somewhere, somewhere where it's like God is with him there. It's like, wait, I thought, I thought God was preparing a place back in Canaan. But it, like, there's no word about God being with his brothers out there. God is with Joseph in his affliction which indicates that like the place of God's blessing might not be a, a piece of real estate in the Middle East. It might be something much bigger than that. Um. Something that always, that kind of stood out to you, it was just like the whole Tower of Babel in 11 of man, this like attempt for like man to like make himself known. Yeah. And then immediately after, God like takes the initiative with Abraham, just like, yeah. hey, like I will make your name great, I'll yeah. do this. And then you see this thing of, Babylon throughout scripture just yeah. like the, the complete like rebellion of God's kingdom totally you kind of see that all the way honestly through to Revelation I think it's just kind of fascinating how that that just that central theme of the contrast between what the world is trying to the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God honestly yeah you know, uh, anyone here a fan of Josh Garrels that chance his song Zion and Babylon oh man that's some that's some biblical theology right there <laughs> <laughs> that song is so good. <laughs> um, um, any, like, in what ways are you guys seeing types or shadows of Christ? Or, I mean, honestly, answer any one of these. Like, uh, uh, yeah, maybe maybe we'll just get one or two other comments before we head into the next portion, just to make sure we have enough time to get through all of it before uh, service gets going. Well, when Joseph offers his brothers. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that before he does that, he has to like go down into the pit. Yep. And then be raised back to even greater glory than yeah. he had before. Yeah. <laughs> betrayed, betrayed with silver, too. <laughs> yeah. No, jo- I mean, again, Joseph's story, like, probably more than almost any other character in the Old Testament, just like for me, is like, holy cow. Like, this is, this is what it looks like. This is what God's person looks like. Like, <laughs> I 
about the idea of Eden being on a mountain was interesting. Yeah, it's, so it's one of those things where I, I'm convinced of it at this point. I think it's in Ezekiel where uh, God talks about Eden as though it were on top of a mountain. I'd have to verify that. Um, uh, Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm is a great book to go through that, that really dials in the Edenic ideas and imagery. And so I would, uh, I would commend that book to anybody. As a matter of fact, I might do like a seminar on the Unseen Realm content at some point because it's, it's like biblical theology, but like it goes even a few layers deeper. Um, his, his content is really, really good. But yeah, uh, I think given, given the broad portrait of like God meeting with people on top of mountains um, throughout Genesis, but really the whole biblical narrative, uh, you know, eventually the temple is going to be on top of Mount Zion. That, that idea indicates to me that um, Eden, in all likelihood, portrayed as it is as a temple of sorts, or the temple is being portrayed as an Eden of sorts, um, it seems to me that it's a, a good inference to make that, uh, I, yeah, maybe search the mountain of God or something like that in the context of Ezekiel, and it, I think it's in there. I could be wrong, but... Well, and again, from a place perspective, if you get over there... It is so dry in that whole <laughs> yeah. You've got to go to a higher place to, right. to get to some of that moisture totally. and precipitation. Yeah. And right. so, you know, thinking about it in terms of, of that, it's like, well, that would only make sense. Totally. Yeah, yeah, no, in the minds of the people who, who formed our Bibles, like, that, that is how they experience God's blessing is like you have like if you want to see where life is, you don't go down here where it's hot and dry and arid. Like that's that's tohu bavohu, you know. <laughs> you gotta you gotta climb up the mountain. You gotta ascend the hill. <laughs> um. Okay. Yeah, so I actually emailed you guys all this this morning. Oh, so, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, like right before class got started. So, <laughs> yeah, and it has, like I said, it has all the scripture, re- well, most of the scripture references in there, so you can, like, track it as it goes. But, yeah, um, Gen- Genesis 1 through 3, I didn't really reference it. All. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, just to make sure we have enough time. This is, this is the longest portion because it is, like, the biggest chunk of the Bible that we're going to go through. But hopefully... Like someday, I'm going to do this in a way where, where I can actually tell the whole story of the Bible within five minutes. That day is not today. <laughs> like, <laughs> eventually, though, I'll get there. Um, eventually, I'll be a good th- biblical theologian. Uh, but we are going to go through, um, really, so as it says here, we're going to go through Exodus all the way through to Malachi. Um, and so with that, all right. <clears throat> So part two, the promise of God's blessing of life came true in the lives of the people of Israel. In their plot of land down in Egypt, the blessing of God turned Goshen nearly Edenic. But opposition arose against God's elect, and a harsh Pharaoh enslaved them in Egypt. And as if he were God himself, he cursed them. The blessing was once again under threat because the violence of wicked men such as Pharaoh threatened to kill the offspring of Israel. However, A chosen child was born. Like Noah before him, Moses was rescued in in an unlikely place, a boat, a place of safety and sanctuary, and he was adopted into the house of royalty. Perhaps he is the promised offspring who will restore the blessing. But Moses left the house of royalty, and he saw the affliction of his suffering and the suffering of his people. 
But using the tools of this world, he attempted to bring salvation through violence, and he murdered an Egyptian. The son of royalty was rejected by his own people, something that would happen several times over throughout his life. And so Moses was exiled from the exile, and he lived in the wilderness in the place of Midian. While there, he came upon the mountain of God. Now, this is not the first time we've seen God's presence on a mountaintop with something like a tree of life nearby. The burning bush called to Moses, and he took off his shoes, for he was in a holy place. God was going to partner with him to bring about salvation. God sent his Savior back to the land of oppression, and through ten signs and wonders, God's people were brought out of that place of slavery through the chaos waters of affliction. Just like God brought creation out of the chaos waters of Genesis, so God brought out his new creation through the waters of the Red Sea. And God called this new creation, my son, in Exodus 4.13. And like Abraham and Isaac of old, God's children were told to commemorate their salvation and, and their adoption by remembering with a substitutionary sacrifice, the Passover lamb. Salvation in a world as blood-soaked and lost in sin as our own requires blood to make atonement. Out from this place of slavery, the people wander into the desert, into the wasteland. This does not appear to be a place of blessing, but God did did provide for their needs, bringing water from the rock, bread from the heavens, bringing meat from the east and sweet water out of the bitter. In this place of barrenness, God shows that he can still bless like it's Eden. Moses went back to the mountain of God, and he received the king's words for his people. Through a covenant partnership, these people would shine the light of God into a sin-darkened world, for they were God's treasured possession, and they would be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as it says in Exodus 19. Like a craftsman making a golden figure, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, Moses says in Deuteronomy 4.20, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. They were being made into God's image. They were supposed to be his vehicle of grace and glory. God's message at Sinai was that when you come into his place, you will live by his rule. And when the world sees what God does in this place, his wisdom will be a blessing to the nations. It will be a light to the world. Now, back in the wild and waste place, suffering can be a place of testing. But will it be a place of blessing, or will it be a place of falling? And they were tested in the wilderness. In their covenant ceremony, the people couldn't even wait until the terms of their marriage were read before they committed spiritual adultery with the golden calves. God was forming them through fire, so they formed idols to deal with their affliction. But it was through their failure that God moved into the camp, For formerly, he met with Moses outside of the camp, but in response to human sin, this covenant-keeping God draws nearer to his people. The tabernacle place is given to the people. This will be a place of blessing and fellowship with God throughout their wandering. The art that decorated the place was filled with images of a garden. The tabernacle would be like the tree of life on top of Eden. It is where heaven meets earth, where the author of life meets with his people. This was the place of blessing that was within the place of God's blessing. But even though it is the place of life for God's covenant people, the deadly reality of human sin is still obvious. God's fiery presence 
required sacrifice for entrance, and the smoke of their offerings ascended to the heavens as the representative of God's people. This was how God's chosen people would draw near, through a sacrifice that ascends. God's people were saved through ten miracles. They received the Ten Commandments, but even with God's place in their midst, they rebelled against God ten times. A generation of people were kept out of the promised land. They did not, uh, uh, sorry, a generation of people were kept out of the promised land because they did not live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. They put the Lord their God to the test and they failed to worship and serve only the Lord their God. Even Moses, through his own rebellion, was kept out of the place of blessing. Apparently, he ultimately was not the woman's promised offspring. Right before entering the place of promise, Moses had the people go atop two mountains, one a mountain of blessing and one a mountain of curse. Should they commit themselves to the terms of the covenant, they would usher in the Eden blessing in the promised land. If they ignored it, their place would become desolate and void, tohu bavohu, and he set the way of God before them. Would they choose blessing in life or abyss, chaos, and death? Moses prophesies that they will choose the bad way and God's people would wait a long time before another prophet like Moses would appear who would save them through a new exodus. Ultimately, an unfaithful Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea. As if to hit the reset button once more, the faithful Israelites passed through the waters of the Jordan. As promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a newly created people entered into God's place of blessing. Moses' successor, Joshua, would lead the people on a great commission. God promised, I am with you, as they brought the sword of God's judgment to the nations and to the people who occupied the place of God's blessing. And God promised to bring them back to that place of seventh-day rest, for they would experience rest from their enemies. But their conquest was incomplete, and the place of this kingdom remained under threat from God's enemies. The land was already delivered, but not yet fully consummated. God's presence went with them in the tabernacle, but we see God's presence now in certain people. God raised up judges to deliver his people. These judges became spirit-empowered saviors, and God mediated his saving presence through these humans. But the salvation only lasted so long as the Savior lived. God's people needed a Savior who could live forever. They needed the Holy Spirit themselves. Because the people were like Adam and Eve, they did what was right in their own eyes, as we see in Judges 17.6 and 21.25. And because they forsook God's wisdom, they turned the place, of blessing and the, and the place of blessing and life into a place of curse and death, and spiritual darkness was over all of the land. These are some of the darkest stories in all of the biblical narrative. But amidst the forces of chaos unleashed in the, in the place of promised blessing, God was still at work. Ruth was grafted into the people of God through her covenant loyalty to Yahweh and his people. Through faith, she became a woman who bore a promised offspring. She blessed Israel and she was blessed for it. She would be the great grandmother of of a new king, David. God's king arose amidst chaos. It even seemed that another one was king when he was first anointed as Messiah. But David gained the blessing of God not through the violent overthrow of Saul, 
but through patient perseverance in the promises of God. And God's Messiah suffered greatly in this place on account of his faithfulness. After his anointing, but before anyone knew he was Messiah, David went as a representative of God's people against a great enemy. A giant snake-like Philistine wore armor of bronze scales, but the meek David, the offspring of Ruth, was armed not with the weapons of this world. In an altogether unlikely way, David killed the giant snake and cut off his head. David's unconventional victory became his people's victory, and perhaps he is the long-awaited snake crusher. David was a man after God's own heart, and so he desired to establish a house, a temple, a place for God. God's response was to set up David's house and to grant him an eternal dynasty. God partnered with David and, like Abraham, promised to make his name great and bring about the promised peace through his offspring. Perhaps under his leadership, God's place would become the promised place of peace and rest. But alas, like God's original kings and qu- king and queen in Eden, David also would succumb to the snake's venom. One fateful night, he saw something that looked good in his own eyes, and he seized Uriah's wife to himself. To cover his sin, he played the part of Cain and had Uriah murdered. Because of this rebellion, the fledgling kingdom was disrupted, and David's offspring Absalom would prove to be a curse and not a blessing. But David had another son, Solomon, and through this son, God would fix his place on top of a mountain. The temple of God's presence was on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and under Solomon's reign, the place of God became a place of rest from their enemies and a place of blessing to the nations. For the temple itself became a place to ask for blessing, a house of prayer for all the nations, and the place where God would pour out his forgiveness. Solomon's rule brought about the fruit of Eden for the people of God, for every man lived under his fig tree all the days of Solomon, positively Edenic. Solomon himself became a blessing to the nations as he thrilled the queen of Sheba with his wisdom. But in the midst of the fruitful land, the seeds of of the anti-Eden place were already planted. Like the violent, greedy kingdoms of this world, Solomon amassed wealth and military power for himself, just as he was instructed not to do in Deuteronomy. He made a marriage alliance with Egypt and went to them to buy horses for battle, again, as he was instructed not to in Deuteronomy. Like Pharaoh... Solomon even made slaves of God's people to build his palace and God's house. We are left hoping for a different type of king who will build a different type of temple. And this is the high watermark of the Old Testament. To cap it all off, Solomon saw the foreign women of this world, the very ones he warned against over and over again in the book of Proverbs, and married 300 of them. <laughs> Making another 700 is concubines for good measure. Um, <laughs> uh, and through these relationships, Solomon turned the people away from, from the God of blessing and towards the idols who have no power to bless. Even at its pinnacle, all was not well in the place of God's blessing. We would need a better king. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we are hard pressed to find one. Solomon's son Rehoboam doubles down on his father's folly, and consequently God's place is divided in two. Kings from both warring factions continually fail to image God successfully, and the kingdoms are plunged into darkness, back into the spiritual abyss. 
The people themselves turned, turned God's place into a land of idolatry, offering burnt offerings and sacrifices to false gods on every mountaintop, but every false, uh, to every false tree of life. The deceitful snake had struck again. Covenant unfaithfulness becomes the story of the day from here on. Hosea speaks to the northern tribes on behalf of a God who betrothed them to himself out of their prostitution, only to see them go back to their wretched ways, where he must go and rescue them again. Ezekiel 16 would paint a similar portrait of the southern tribe of Judah. Oppression, deceit, infidelity, and violence reigned in God's place, and the prophets called it out. Like the field that was stained with the crying blood of Abel, God's place was stained with the outcry of the oppressed. The people of God were called to shine the light of God's presence from their place of blessing, but they became a byword, a stench, and a curse. Isaiah 42 describes God's servant Israel like this, Hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does, does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. This is in contrast to when he redeemed them. For then, their calling from earlier in Isaiah 42 was this. God said, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. God called Israel to, to open the eyes of the blind, but they became blind themselves through their idolatry. They became like the idols that they made, who could not see, taste, or hear. The oracles of judgment throughout Isaiah, Amos, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and really the rest of them are absolutely devastating. It becomes clear that the people have forsaken the way of life, and thus they have inherited the way of death. As a result, they were exiled. God's use of Assyria and Babylon to judge his people were devastating. Jeremiah describes the exile in Jeremiah 4 with absolutely stunning imagery. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked to the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all of the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Through human rebellion, God's place became desolate, formless and void, tohu bavohu. No birds, no fruit, no cities, no humans. It became a place inhospitable to human life. And the people were exiled off of Mount Zion, away from Jerusalem, down the mountain, and east of the promised land. But even in this, we see God's faithfulness to his place of blessing. The Jubilee year makes an appearance here because the people refused to make the land a place of rest. So in keeping with the law of Moses, he gave that land 70 years of rest before their return. One year of rest for every seven years that the people lived in it and did not give it rest. But alongside these oracles of judgment came prophecies of hope and restoration. Ezekiel 36's promise of restoration lands like a ton of bricks in the midst of God's judgment and exile. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt 
and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land was desolate. This land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden and the waste and the desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. God's temple place was destroyed. His land was laid waste. His people were exiled. But God promised a renewed people with a new covenant, with the law written on their hearts and in whom the spirit of God would dwell. God promised a new David who would take up the throne and rule in a way completely different from all the unfaithful kings before him. God promised a new type of temple in Ezekiel, one that would take root on a mountain and bring blessing, life, and healing to the nations. God promised through the prophets like Obadiah and Nahum that God's judgment was also for the nations. But he also promised through a prophet like Jonah, an unfaithful Israelite if there ever was one, that God's blessing and salvation were also for the nations. In fact, God's promises fell nothing short of a new creation, as we read in Isaiah 65 and 66 a restored Edenic place, the nations would flock to this mountain and inquire at his temple. At his temple. <clears throat> Indeed, the richness of God's dwelling would blur the lines between people and place. For Isaiah prophesied, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And as at the beginning of God's commission to his people in Eden, he would remind them in both Isaiah and Habakkuk that someday the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. And these would not be like the waters of judgment. The people returned from the exile, but to what? A place occupied by a foreign power with a second-rate temple whatever happened to God's promise. That's it for that one. So, um, by way of reminder, this is, this is what we're dealing with here. I'm not going to pause for questions. I'm looking at the time. I, I want to get done in about 10 minutes. Um, I might read really fast for the rest of this. I'm going to get a sip of water. You guys good? You with me? Okay. How, how y'all doing? Okay. <clears throat> Okay, um, part three, Jesus, the church, and the new creation. <clears throat> and so we open the gospel of Matthew, and immediately we are told about the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the offspring of David, the offspring of Abraham. He is the promised offspring. Like Sarah's birth of Isaac, the promised child would only come through God's miraculous intervention. Similar to Exodus, we see a deranged ruler who wants to destroy the promised offspring. Herod plays the part of Pharaoh, and Jesus is taken into Egypt. Through corruption, the place of God has become like Egypt. And this is where we see Matthew quote Hosea 2.11, when he says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. By way of reminder from last week, Hosea is talking about the Exodus. He's talking about the people of Israel. What is Matthew doing here? Let me show you. Like Israel, Jesus passed through the waters of the Jordan as the faithful Israelite. And the Spirit, just as he did at the dawn of creation, hovers over Jesus. 
This is the new creation. This is God's new people. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Just like God's son Israel, Jesus wandered in the wilderness. And in those 40 days, he did not succumb to the temptation in that place of testing. Every point where Israel failed, Jesus passed gloriously. Just as Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, Jesus enters the place of Capernaum where he brings the light of new creation to a people who walk in the dark. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Just like Moses went up on the mountain place to deliver the message of God's rule, so in Matthew 5, Jesus ascends the mountain and tells them what life will look like in God's kingdom. Do you think he came to abolish Moses and the prophets? No, he came to fulfill. In Jesus, blessing pours on the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the pure in heart, the merciful, the peacemakers, the persecuted, the sort of people you'd be looking for if you were reading your, New Test- or your Old Testament wisely. In fact, Jesus doubles down on the law of Moses. Hatred is the seed of murder. Give it no root. Lust is the seed of adultery. Forsake it. Marriage and oaths embody eternal realities. Exalt in their glory. Forgive the sinner. Love the enemy. Give to the needy. Pray without ceasing. Put up treasure in heaven. Fret not, fear not, judge not, and do to others what you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. Abide in these words, and you will be a sturdy house, a place that cannot be shaken. Drink of these words like thirsty ground, and you will bear the fruit of Eden. Christ cannot be stained by human imperfection. So the cleanliness laws are fulfilled as Christ heals the lepers. Like, this, like the centurion, the nations are brought into the light of God's presence and blessing through faith in the Messiah. Sickness flees from the man who embodies Eden. The chaos waters stand still at his rebuke. Spiritual rebels are cast down from their positions of influence and they're judged. The thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities have no pull on him. He reconstitutes the 12 tribes of Israel by calling 12 disciples. He becomes the place of rest, the Sabbath, the long-awaited seventh-day rest, as he calls to us, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, me, uh, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is the one who rules by the activity of God's indwelling spirit. He is greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than the temple, and greater than any aspect of the Old Testament because he is its living and breathing fulfillment. Like Moses, he provides bread from heaven. Like Solomon, he utters wisdom with every word. Like the temple, he brings God's presence wherever he goes. In fact, John's gospel uses the imagery of a tabernacle when it tells us that God's word who became flesh dwelt among us. Jesus is the place of God's blessing, life, love, and glory. For a moment, the veil is taken away, and on a mountain place, Jesus is transformed in front of his disciples. With him were Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, and only in Jesus was Moses able to set foot in the land of blessing. And it was there that he discussed the exodus that he would accomplish, saving God's people from a different type of deadly enemy. Jesus is the true prophet who utters judgment over the scribes and Pharisees and predicts the fall of the temple in Jerusalem within one generation. It is the close of one age, one epoch, and the dawn of an age to come. Jesus is the true Israelite. 
He is the true image of God. He is the covenant head of the new and better covenant. He is the new Adam, the new creation, the new Eden, the new temple, the faithful God incarnate. So how do we get into his place? Daniel 7 tells us how the Son of Man represents the persecuted people of God. He will be mauled by the beasts of chaos. These are the kingdoms of this world, but they will have their dominion stripped away. And the Son of Man will be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples and nations should serve him. This Son of Man will sit on a throne that was prepared for the human images of God. Isaiah 6 talks about a vision of Yahweh filling the temple place, full of glory, high, and lifted up. Isaiah 52, 13 talks about a servant who will be high and lifted up, but this servant will go on to be persecuted. His appearance will be so marred that it will be beyond human semblance. It will look as though the image of God were removed from him. Why? Because all we, like sheep, have gone astray from God. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus will stand up and tell the people in John 3, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus became the image of a curse, so that we could inherit a blessing. He invites everyone into the place of God's blessing when he cries out in John 12, 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It is at his trial that Jesus tells the high priest, that he is the son of man who is to act, who in his act of sacrifice is actually being coronated king of the cosmos. He is the fulfillment of the son of man. He is the fulfillment of the true human. The kingdoms of this world will never understand how this works. Jesus said as much to his disciples in Mark 10, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Self-sacrificing love is at the foundation of the place of blessing. And though tested as others were in a garden on another, in another way, Jesus prayed to his Father, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Humans lost the place of blessing because they sought their own glory. Jesus recovered the place of blessing for all of us because he sought God's glory. And so Jesus was exiled from God's mountain of blessing on Zion. He was exiled outside of Jerusalem, outside of God's place of rest. Like Isaac with wood mounted on his back, he ascended the mountain of curse, the mountain of Calvary, and he was crucified. Jesus's rest was stripped from him so that it could fall on us. The blessed life that Jesus earned was taken from him, and he became a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Jesus ushered God's kingdom in in an utterly unexpected way. Coronated on a cross, he redefined what it meant to be king. Taking on the curse, he freely hands out a blessing to anyone who calls on him. Taken to the place of turmoil and despair, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He brings, by doing this, he brings us into the place of heavenly blessedness. And he calls us to orient our lives around that. Unless we forget, the people always wandered from the place when their leader died. And so Christ was raised on the third day, demonstrating that the blessed promise of God cannot be overcome even by the grave. 
Having defeated the enemy of death on behalf of his people, in his resurrection, we share in his victory. He became the new humanity, the new creation, and so has anyone who has joined him. This is for all those who are in Christ. His body will never undergo the corruption of the curse again. And yet he ascended for us as a representative to God, bearing the marks of his sacrifice. He will forever mediate love and blessing for his people, and his kingdom will have no end. Unlike the leaders of old, this Savior shall never die again, and so he ever lives to intercede. And as he ascends to his heavenly throne, arms outstretched in a, in a position of blessing, like the commission of Joshua, he calls us to go out into the place of hostility, out to the nations, and bring with us not the sword of God's judgment, but the message of God's blessing, his reconciliation, his cross, the message of his son, to bring with us the message of God's kingdom rule. So where is our place as the church? In Ephesians 1, we're told we've received heavenly blessing in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 3, we're told that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, sharing in the Messiah's rule and reign as we live distinct, light-filled lives that proclaim that the life of faith in God is the place of true rest, joy, and blessedness. There's more to be said, but we are told in 1 Peter that we used to be nothing and no one. But now, echoing the words of Exodus 19, we are God's chosen people, his royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. We are the light of the world, and one day it will be a world that we inherit with Christ. Beloved, in Christ, we are his new temple place. Christ is the cornerstone, and we are living stones being formed into the place of God's dwelling and blessing. We are filled with the Spirit, and if you walk by the Spirit, you will bear the fruit reminiscent of the tree of life. And to draw our attention momentarily back to the pre-created state, the realm of nothingness and void, be mindful that there is nothing, there is no thing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, who offered himself as a fragrant offering to God. He ascended to the highest of heavens as our sacrifice, and there he will never die nor cease to intercede for his people until that great day of his return. And so what is that great day? In Revelation at the new creation, it is the culmination of the seventh day rest. It is the garden city that has no need for a temple because it is the place where God and the lamb will dwell among their people and be their light and their guide. It will be full, full restoration. It is restoration that we taste in part now as the spirit dwells in us to be our guide, our help and our glory. In, in this already not yet time, we see as though through a mirror dimly, but one day we will stand in that place and see him face to face. And until then, we are called to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. We're out of time. <laughs> Thanks, everybody.